Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Doc Rivers is a future Hall of Fame coach and a Hall of Fame human being. He is one of the most respected leaders in the basketball world. I'm Dave Wohl, and Doc joins me next on Dave's Front Office. Dave's Front Office is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Our host is Dave Wohl, who has spent a half a century in every conceivable NBA role except owner, but he's working on it. He's been a player, assistant coach, head coach, assistant GM, and GM. As a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, he was once insulted on the court by a ref who called him an Ivy Leaguer. Here's Dave Wall. Welcome to Dave's Front Office. I'm your host, Dave Wall, and my guest is Doc Rivers, the new head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, and currently 10th in all-time NBA coaching victories and closing in on 1,000 wins. Now, Doc, before we start, I just want to mention that Doc and I have both agreed that during the years I was his assistant coach, I was responsible for all his losses because he listened to my suggestions on the bench. <laughs> and he was responsible for all his wins when he had the good sense to ignore all my suggestions <laughs> and followed his instincts. Doc, welcome to Dave's front office on Pure Hoop Media. I wish I could like pick off some of those losses that I had, not with you, but you know, I think about the the Boston years when we, I don't know, we were trying to lose, but <laughs> it felt like that. Let me put it like that. And uh, that goes on your record. But, you know, Dave, we've been together a long time, obviously. You've, uh, you're one of the one people in basketball that I always reference that has done literally every job. Other than being a trainer, you've, you've pretty much covered everything in the NBA. Well, I haven't gotten to the owner level, Doc, and I don't think I'm going to get there before my time has passed on this earth. But yeah, I, it's been a very interesting journey, to say the least. You know, I think we have to begin today by talking about the riots in the Capitol last week and the continuing threats on the inauguration, because this affects all segments of our society, including sports. I, I want to ask you, were you struck by the difference on how the police treated a violent white crowd as opposed to how the police use physical force against the Black Lives Matters protests about social justice for the killing of Black Americans by police. Yeah, I think everyone was. And, and not only that, just the, the law and order crowd. You know, it was supposedly the law and order crowd. Yes, yet uh, a police officer was killed by a fire hydrant. You know, um, you know, when you watch that video, Dave, it's sad. It's sad on a lot of levels. It's sad, number one, that our capital uh, is being attacked. Can you imagine if we thought that was Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda uh, attacking right. the Capitol? Right. I mean, and, and what the response would have been. You know, the fact that uh, the DC mayor called 10 times to get National Guards, to get people, no one would come, uh, and our Capitol was under attack, uh, speaks volumes. And then obviously, when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the day-to-day -day marched on DC, and you saw this show of strength at the Capitol steps, and now you see this where we're opening the barriers. Come on in. 
uh, <laughs> walking people down the steps to help them out after they looted the Capitol building. Uh, it was sterling. It also showed something, though. It showed, you know, there's been this thing about privilege, right? Uh, but there's not been video like evidence of it. And now there's proof of it. It, it just showed their hand. And so um, in a lot of ways, it was a sad day. But in some ways, it was an important day for America. And, and I look at it in both. You know, would you agree that if, if that had been a black crowd, mostly a black crowd of Black Lives Matters protesters that tried to charge up those steps to break into the Capitol, that the police response would have been totally different. There might have been some of them shot, some of them beaten, certainly, when they tried to break in. And that's what stuck out to me immediately. Well, there's no doubt there would have been bloodshed. And that's not even a controversial statement. That's a factual statement. There, there would have been bloodshed. They would have been called thugs. They would have been called all kinds of names. And, you know, it, it took all that before you heard those same things called on this group of people. Um, you know, listen, the one thing I, I, I keep saying this, like this, this country has to come together. First, we need a reckoning. Uh, things have happened in, the, in this past in our history that we need to recognize. Secondly, we need to understand that there's a divide in our country. Uh, unfortunately, the ex-president, and I love saying that, uh, uh, I absolutely love saying that, uh, kind of stoked those fires. And 74 million people voted for, for Donald Trump. You know, uh, 80 million voted for Joe Biden. It was almost 82. 82 million. So it tells you that we're split in a lot of ways. And the split is not as large in some sections as we think they are. And then in some sections, the rioting section, the looting session of that Capitol building, that's a big divide. Um, the, the thing I don't get, Dave, is equality. Like, what's wrong with everyone having equality? Right. I, th there's this thing that people who have had equality their whole lives, that if they give it to someone else, that they're giving up something and they're not all they're doing is giving everyone an equal chance to the same things they've had all their lives and i think that's what most people want they want a fair shake yeah and you know i i know you've experienced a lot of racism in your own life uh, your wife chris was subjected to graffiti on her car and racist remarks when she started going out with you at marquette and after the two of you were married and had a family while you were playing for the spurs your house in San Antonio was burned to the ground by a couple of racist kids. Luckily, you and your family were not in the house. And I know Martin Luther King advocated a, a path of nonviolence. And I think you followed that path by raising your voice louder, using your stature and position to advocate for change. But how did you bury your rage when you saw the ashes of your house, lost your dog, your family photographs and trophies? It was hard, Dave. Um... You know, I remember that day and pulling up to a house that was literally crashing down. Um, and at first, I didn't know why. I just knew my house was on fire. Uh, then the next day, the, they're Texas Rangers. And yeah, they're real Texas Rangers right. with, with the cowboy hats and all. They pull up and they're doing an investigation. And they know immediately who had done it. And it was skinheads, uh, a group of, uh, you know, alt-right kids who had done it once before to an Indian couple. 
Uh, and they burned my house down because of the color of my skin. Uh, and so the rage was there. There's no doubt. Um, but the voice of my father, uh, of my, my parents was there as well. Um, you know, there'll be no victims, you know, keep moving on. Don't let them see you hurt, uh, keep moving. And so that's what I did. It was funny. Now, Chris, on the other hand, <laughs> she wanted, I had friends too that called me. Honestly, I had honestly got friends from Chicago that called me and wanted to come up and, and start something. Right. And I, I said, no, I resisted all that. I said, uh, I'm going to keep living my life to let people know there's nothing you're going to do to affect me. Uh, I'm not going to give you uh, that pleasure uh, of looking at me and, and being a vengeful person. That's not who I am. And I think that would have hurt me and that would have hurt my life. You know, your, your dad was a Chicago policeman. And while you were a young man, when or probably a kid, six, seven years old, maybe when Martin Luther King was assassinated, you know, I wonder, did, did you, especially with your dad as a cop, have a lot of discussions about race uh, when you were a young man about how to deal not only just with life, but with the police that may have stuck with you and that you've passed on to maybe your kids and your family? Yeah, you have to. Uh, when you're a person of color, you better have that conversation. And I think the, the conversation took more notice for me is because my dad, who was a cop, was telling me about cops. Right. You know, and it for me, the first time I ever saw my father cry was the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. You know, I never had heard of Martin Luther King right. until the day he was assassinated. I was seven years old, I think six or seven. And I come home, my grandfather and my father are on the couch crying. And I, I knew something was big. Uh, now, every one of my family members were in the house. So I knew no one in my family had died. So it was very... Uh, complicated for me to try to figure out, confusing, like what was going on. They're all sitting watching the riots uh, around LA, around everywhere. Uh, they're, you know, the police dogs, they were showing that. And that far after is when my dad had that conversation that said, hey, listen, I'm a cop in Maywood. Uh, you are safe here. But don't you forget when you leave this area, and you get pulled over or you get stopped. If you're walking down the street, don't run, be polite. And, and the first question, well, what if I haven't done anything? Don't run. That didn't polite. matter, your dad was yeah. telling you. That didn't <laughs> matter. And he was saying, it is dangerous out there uh, for you. And he made that clear for me, meaning uh, now I was a black kid, it's dangerous out there. It's not what you think it is on TV. And he made a point of that. You know, and when you're, when you're growing up like me as a white kid, you know, I didn't, I was fortunate being in the league this long and being exposed to teammates who were black and hearing the stories. And when I got into coaching, coaching staff members, and they would tell these stories about their parents telling them about if you got stopped, how careful you had to be what you said. I, I, I never knew about that because if I got stopped by a cop and the occasions I did, it was there was no threat to me. You know, there was nothing that I had to worry about other than I got a speeding ticket or something. Well, you know, Dave, I, I was in a workshop during the pandemic. I think that's all we did with Zoom workshops. Right. And, you know, it was, a, it was like 10 black guys, 10 white guys, and we discussed race. Um, and they were, we were all from different areas, different economic groups. And one of the most startling things, one of the guys said, a white gentleman said, 
You know, I was growing up, always ran to the cops. You guys grew up running away from the cops. Mm -hmm. He said, just the thought of that is a scary image uh, to me. And, and, and it's very true that that's, that's what we felt. We and got scared. Yeah, and it hasn't been just recently. It's been generational. It's you been know, generational. generation passing that on to the next. Listen, and it's also, you think like, well, this is a story that I tell everybody. When I played for the Clippers, that coach, when I played for the Clippers, the Clippers arena was in South Central, yeah. right? And I would drive my BMW to practice. I was pulled over four times a week on the average, just, you know, checking to see my license. And it got so old after a while. And I realized I was being pulled over for no other reason is I'm a black man driving a nice car uh, in South Central LA. And, you know, it's funny, I will say this, and this is where that gives you hope. 30 years later, 25 years later, I'm coaching. I didn't get pulled over one time in the four years that I coached the Clippers. So I don't know what's changed, maybe the location of the arena, I'm not sure, right. but that's a difference. And so there is hope, uh, there's marginal differences for sure. Now, have you had that same discussion with your kids that your dad had with you? And, and how did they react when, when you first told them? Well, it was interesting uh, with my oldest, Jeremiah, it was the first right. one and then each one, each one dealt with it or heard it different. You know, I remember Jeremiah asking, well, I live in Winter Park, Florida, Dad, what are you talking about? And I kept trying to, I had to tell him, I said, son, listen, I want you to come home. And the, the message I had with all my kids is do whatever it takes to come home. Right. And that means being safe. That means if they ask for something that you don't feel like you should give them, give it to them. Your whole goal is when you're pulled over, I'm coming home tonight. That's it. And that's basically uh, the talk that I had with them. Um, does, it, does it depress you at times? Like right now, it, it almost seems like we haven't made any progress at times. You know, it's one step forward if you start with when Martin Luther King was, was leading, you know, protests and everything. And now you get, it seems like almost one step forward and five steps back with the encouragement and rise of white supremacy again and the treatment of, of the Black Lives Matters protesters. Does it depress you when you look at it in that long time frame? It does at times, you know, um, I, I will say this, and I'm not patting myself on the back, but right when I heard Donald Trump for the first time say, make America great again, the, it was the again part that scared every black right. person. And, and that was a message to me. Uh, that was a message to, wake up the white supremacists, to wake up the alt-right. Um, you know, you could tell what that message was about. Uh, let's read, you know, you heard the rioters, the looters. We want our country back. Back from what? Back from what? And so, yeah, when you hear that, it, it bothers you. But, you know, we also are going to have a new president and a new vice president that uh, is a brown lady. Right. And so we've just had four years previous we had eight years of a black president. You know, my dad was the most well-read man that I know of. And he died saying, well, boy, you can be everything in life except for president. Unfortunately, he died before Barack Obama was oh. president. You know, so you can't make that statement anymore. So yeah, there is change. Uh, it's slow. But as a lot of people have noted, it's probably generational change that we need. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it may take generations, but each one has to get better. I am so encouraged that this last election, it was black, it was brown, it was white, uh, and but most importantly, it was young. Young people came out and voted. And I think once you get involved in politics, uh, it never leaves you. And so, yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of faith in the future. Did you did you talk to some of your current players about the Capitol riots? And if you did, I'm curious what their reaction was. No, it was interesting. We did, and their reactions were exactly what you think they were. Everyone's reaction was, "What if that had been us?" Right. You know, some of the guys like Tobias Harris and some of those guys were actually in uh, some of the marches, and they saw the actual violence on the street when they were marching peacefully met by riot gear. Right. You know, I don't know when, what's the difference between a march and a protest and a riot, you know? Uh, we, it appears to be people, the color of your skin that defines exactly. what it is. And, yeah. and, uh, and that's exactly, I think it was Tobias that said that. He said, it's amazing the difference. When we march, it's a riot. When they march, it's a protest. Right. Uh, uh, and he said, it was sad, Coach, for me to see that. Like, that's not right. That's not fair. And I said, no, it's not right. It's not fair, but it's real. And it's America. And our, our job is to make this a better place. Um, I know you'd love to talk to your team about life and not just basketball, especially when there's certain events. Uh, did you talk to them about Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King Day? And if you did, what, what did you say to them? You know, I, the, the two things that I said to them, and you know, I do every year, I right. give them some kind of message. Uh, the one is about what nonviolence is and how tough it is. I think this generation think being nonviolent means you're soft or you're meek. And, and I, I was telling them, no, it's probably the toughest thing you can actually do is be nonviolent uh, because you have to take hits and keep marching. You know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, uh, they both stand out in that. I mean, Martin, Gandhi got run over by horses and got up and prayed for the people who were doing it. Martin Luther King got hit by pebbles and stones, uh, was shot at, his church was blown up and kept saying, I love you. Uh, to me, you want toughness, that's toughness. Right. And then the other one is, there's this thing with our young people, they think that they can protest without consequence or they can boycott without, you know, sometimes you have to take a stand and you may lose something. Right. You may lose your job. You know, Muhammad Ali lost the key part of his career right. over what he thought was right. I don't think our young people understand that. Oh, I was protesting well, and you were fired for it. Uh, that can happen. You know, there, there sometimes is consequences to taking a stand. But if you think it's the right thing to do, then you should do it. Yeah, and I think a recent example is Colin Kaepernick, you know, the first oh. one to really kneel. You know, it's always the first couple that get penalized the most because then eventually you hope that the tide of opinion changes. But you look at him and, and what he was trying to get across obviously was twisted by a lot of people to make it look terrible. But, you know, he's, he's paid a, a, a big price. Man, um, he's, he's paid an amazing price. And you think, Dave, about him and how un-American he was. Right. Uh, and yet... The looters were not, you right. know, the rioters of the Capitol were not. It's it's amazing how they say he was un-American for kneeling, but they're not un-American for charging our state capital, our, our, our country's capital. 
you know, social media is playing a huge part in the information mm -hmm. and disinformation that's thrown at everyone each day. But aren't NBA players really starting to figure out how to use that platform proactively to get out of the to get their messages kind of, you know, consistently out there? I think it's amazing. Um, you know, it's gotten some in trouble, obviously. Uh, but overall, if you look at the masses and the power that they all have, you know, when we played, um, it was we would say something and someone would write it. And sometimes they wrote it correctly. Uh, sometimes they didn't write it exactly the way we meant. And that was just the way it was. Right. Now, these players, they can write their own message. They can get their own messaging out there. Uh, and they're powerful and they know it. Uh, and I think it's beautiful. Yeah, because I, I, I felt you would say that because, you know, one of the things is sports for so long has been thought of as we don't want athletes to have opinions. We just want to be entertained by them. We want to get away from all the problems in the world. And the athletes can do that by just playing their game and then kind of disappearing into the woodwork. And that's definitely changing. And, and I think you and I both agree that's really a, a big positive thing. Yeah, you know, uh, I remember uh, during the pandemic again, another one of those talks, Oscar Robinson said something really interesting. He said, you know, Doc, I, I did say, I, I made some pretty strong political comments when I was a player. The problem is I was making it to a writer that was right, uh, that was white, right. and didn't really believe it. And so he didn't write it, but what they did write is a surly Oscar Robinson, uh, not such a great guy. They never wrote what I said. They turned what I said into what they thought their opinion of me was about. Right. And he was saying the difference now is LeBron James can write exactly what he means. And, and there is no, no confusion about what he's saying. And it's, so it is powerful. Is it, is it disappointing sometimes that through all this over the last year, um, there were a few owners that really stepped up and made a lot of positive comments. And then there were some that just kind of had one comment that, yeah, I agree with my team and you never heard from them again. Is it disappointing that the owners haven't really stepped up because those are the guys that have a chance to actually apply a little more pressure to things because of their wealth, their standing in certain political areas and the community. Yeah, I don't know if it's disappointing or not because I think it's a, a microcosm of America. You know, uh, I thought the owners didn't want to get involved. Steve, Steve Bomber, Steve Bomber fired me. Listen, right. uh, yet overall, I thought he was very out front right. uh, and, and had been before, you know, uh, Mickey Harrison, I thought, was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Mark Cuban, Cuban was out front. But then we had a group of owners that you could tell were not getting involved. Some probably supported Trump. That doesn't mean they were racist, but right. they supported a guy that was racist. You know, my favorite saying is, I'm never going to call Donald Trump a racist, but the racists think he's a racist. <laughs> and that's very that's that's a scary thought when you think about it yeah. you know so um yeah i thought we we had some owners that were were suspiciously quiet but overall i thought the ownership in our league stepped up and i saw it firsthand in in the bubble when we right. had that meeting with the players and all the owners that teams were still involved each said something and uh and they jumped on pretty good so i was very proud of that moment you know, the other power the players are starting to figure out and use is their power to move themselves around on the board, so to speak, to get to a team they want, combined with another player they want. You know, you had that with your Clipper team with Kawhi and Paul George. Yeah. 
the year before. And this year it was, you know, KD and Kyrie and, and Harden. And, and I'm sure you think that's that's a good thing because of their they're able to use that power rather than waiting for owners to try and do what they want with them. I do. You know, it's funny. I I I get kicked back on that all the time, especially from some of the older players. Right. You know, uh, what are they doing? We didn't do that. Well, I always say, well, we should have, you know, <laughs> we really should have. If, if you had the power to do it, you know, you have to play yourself into that position. Number one, right. you have to be good enough to have that much power. Number two, uh, and then you have to be smart enough to use it in the right way. Uh, there are players who decided I'm staying where I'm at. I'm going to make the best of that. That's fine. But, you know, doing what, what James Harden did, uh, doing with some of the other guys, that if they have the power to do it, I, I don't like one thing. Like if you've signed that contract, you can't then not uh, play. You got to play. Right. You got to play until you're traded or until right. something works out. I think you have to honor your deal. Well, it also um, shows respect for your teammates and everybody else that's in it there at that time. Yeah. And you want to still get paid, you know, yeah. like I've, I've always laughed at, I don't want to play anymore, but, but, Oh, by the way, you still pay me. Right. You know, no, that, it doesn't work that way in real life, but there still is nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I'm going to keep playing, but I don't want to be here anymore. Right. Uh, it's the same thing in a workforce. People do it in work every day. Um, you know, at all the big companies, the stars of the companies move around all the time. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. I just want um, to come to Philly. You know, dealing with the continued racism and the conspiracy-fueled riots is not the only problem this season. There is also the surging COVID-19 that's been the backdrop for the entire last yeah. year. Last season, you were isolated in a bubble. Everyone stuck in one place, and it seemed to work pretty well, but nobody wanted a bubble this year. Has the responsibility and accountability really shifted to each individual player, coach, and support staff member now because of the yeah, way yeah. everybody's this out is, of the bubble? This is way harder. Uh, having said that, it's much easier mentally. It's nice going home. It's nice having a home-cooked meal. It's nice driving in a car, seeing people, you know. Um, so mentally for everybody, this is doable. Uh but is it feasible is the question. Can we pull this off, Dave? And there's moments that I think absolutely we can. And then there's moments like last week, I wasn't so sure if we can. I mean, you know, we, we played a game the other night against Memphis and the guy had it. it we canceled the next game. Um, it's scary. And you know what? I still think we don't give enough credit for, not even credit uh, from a coaching standpoint. I have to see every player deals with COVID differently. Some players are completely freaked out about it and scared. Some players don't even know there's COVID. They could care less. You know, they feel like they're invincible. And those two groups have to play right. together. Um, and so you've got to try to keep a safe environment uh, and to ease the guy's mind that is the most fearful of it. Every single practice, every single plane flight, and everything you do. Well, what seemed so crazy was you're a month into the season, there have been, I think, 15 games postponed. 17 teams were involved in those postponements, which is over half the league. And like you've had a lot of players, the Wizards had, I, I think they had four games postponed. And at one point, they had like nine players either who had tested or were in the contact tracing quarantine. And, and it's just how crazy is this? And that's in the first month. 
Yeah. So, so sometimes I wonder, you know, with the new stricter protocols now, is this just kind of a rolling form of a bubble? Because you can go home and, that, and like you said, that's great. But you can't bring friends over, I guess. You can't go out on the road. You're eating your meals, what, in your room on the road now? Yeah, um, you can't leave the hotels now. You can't leave the um, hotel. You can't, eat on, you can't even eat on a plane, which is which amazing. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. No, there's no food on planes uh, because they don't want you to take your mask off. Right. You know, so there's a lot of stuff to it, Dave. You still have some contact uh, with other people, and that's the dangerous part. Getting, you know, right. getting in the elevator at home. Uh, you know, you know, just your housekeeper. There's people that can come. Uh, you know, family members live with you. They're right. not. Un they're supposed to be. Uh, they have to be just as vigilant as you, but you know, they're all or not. That's just right. not gonna work. Some of these family members work and they go to work. So right. it does bring in a lot of lot more people at play, which is the reason we've had some games canceled. I mean, listen, we were rolling uh, out of the gate and, and then bam, we get hit well, with COVID. Game, yeah. uh, and we've yet to, we've not recovered from it yet. We're still trying to. And so we're trying to come out of it. Um, so with these new protocols, and, and you might get a laugh out of this, but I know when you used to go to Miami, if you had a free day, you love to play golf. So a beautiful yeah. day in Miami, you'd go play golf. So I'm assuming now, if you had a day off in Miami, not only can't you go play golf, but you might not even be able to sit at the hotel pool if a player wanted to. No, you're not supposed to. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because let me say this. If I was living in LA right. and I went to Miami, I wouldn't worry about it much. Right. But I'm in January in Philadelphia. <laughs> if I get the white Miami, stuff's falling down now. <laughs> if I get to if I get to January and we get to Miami, I know this can be tough to keep me away from the course. But at the end of the day, honestly, you got to do what's right for the league. You really do. You just this is the this virus is the virus of responsibility, and you are responsible for other people, and that's what makes this virus so tricky. Do you, one thing you said, which was interesting, because my, one of my concerns was there might be more mental health issues that crop up just because of the length of time that they're going to try and sustain this and, and the irregular scheduling of games, because if they postpone too many games, there's no backside of the schedule. They can actually play them. It's just going to have to be a shorter, you know, schedule. But uh, for another three, four months to guy, for guys to be able to do this, do you, do you have faith that for the most part, you might be able to pull this off if this rate continues, or do you worry? Man, Dave, I, I don't gets... know. I honestly don't. I, I am an optimist. I came into this with the right mindset, right. Uh, but there's days I'm thinking there's no way, uh, especially if if you're going to cancel uh, the amount of games. I think what's going to happen is going to be an unequal season, meaning we could have played 75 games. There's going to be teams that play 63 games, right. and they're going to go on the percentage. Uh, what makes that really unfair is that team that played the 63 games could have played teams that are on the lower level. Lower, easier schedule, record. yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's a scary thing for me. I want to pivot now, and I want to talk about your current team, okay? And uh, first of all, I think you surprised a lot of people when you got back into coaching so quickly. What, what attracted you about the 76ers job? The two guys, I'm, I'm going to be honest, Ben and, and Joel, um, I just looked at their talent, their, their level, um, and, and their youth. Like, it would have been interesting 
it, Ben and Joel had the same talent, but it was 32. Right. Compared to 24, 25, I, I don't, they're pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm probably doing a podcast somewhere uh, and doing NDA games. You know, I would have <laughs> taken the break. Uh, it was going to have to take the right job and the right opportunity. And I thought it was the only one uh, that I would consider. Now, what I think was, is going to be interesting is to hear your first conversation in Boston after we'd gotten KG and we got Ray Allen to join Paul Pierce, you got them all together and you had a great conversation with them. Um, Simmons and Embiid are more millennials now. They're younger, not quite the experience. What was your conversation like with them? Did you take a different approach the first time you had a chance to talk to them? Um, that's a different conversation for sure. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, um, Kevin, Ray, and Paul had been, maybe Kevin had won an MVP, I think. Yeah, uh, I they had won, they'd been on six to seven all-star teams each. Um, they had had so much individual success at that point. If they had a brand back then, they already had established it. Right. So you're talking to three guys. The only thing they hadn't succeeded in is winning a title as a team. And so, you know, I made that, statement they were ready to win they were ready uh ben and joel are still so young they're still discovering what being a leader is and um what winning is and what it takes to win um so for me it was more about will you do what it takes to win uh are you willing to be coached uh what what do you want to learn where do you want to be when you retire you know you don't need to have that conversation with those other three guys. You do you think those guys had that. ever? Do you think those guys had ever had those questions asked of them, judging by how they responded to you? Had they ever? I would about say, probably not. Um, you know, because both of them came in at, as high draft picks, and so they were, and they, you know, with the way the NBA is structured, and you know this, they were more, you know, people were more worried about them resigning. <laughs> you know? uh, and so it's different you know it really is now they've already resigned so now it's it is time for them like you know the thing that I kept getting is they haven't won you know why why would you go there as those two guys haven't won and I and I said well I can give you a whole list of people that haven't won uh together I said it's the yet word that to me uh really intrigues me they haven't won yet. Uh, and and like, that's what they have to say every day. No, you're right. We haven't won. They have to own that, but it, it should be followed by yet. And the yet part is where that's where they have to do the work uh, to take that away. And, and so far, they've honestly, they've been willing to do it. What do you think is the key to unlocking the potential for those two? Because when you watch them play, you see that both of them in some ways are still scratching the surface in a number of areas. Yeah, well, Joel, Joel is so skilled already, right. you know. Uh, Joel is more showing that skill consistently every night, um, showing it to his teammates, leading every night. So his is in some ways a little simpler, but his leadership part probably has to grow the most. He has to prove to his teammates that he's in it every night with them as well. Ben is more of a work skill part. You know, Ben reminds me, uh, and I hate giving labels, I almost hate saying this, but 
but he reminds me a little bit of uh, a cross between Scottie Pippen and Jason Kidd. You know, uh, Jason Kidd's speed, Scottie Pippen's just, um, you know, utility knife. You can do a little bit of everything. Um, no, Ben's not a point guard. He's not a, a pure point guard who's going to come down and notice stuff. Ben mm-hmm. is a reactor, like Scottie Pippen. If you get him the ball in the middle of the floor, Ben sees everything. And so Ben's next step is his skill work, you know, becoming a better shooter, becoming a better free throw shooter, right. um, you know, staying, not turning the ball over. Uh, so for him, his work uh, is really showing up every day. Sam Cassell, I don't know if you could pick a better guy no, to Sam's work with. For him, yeah. He's perfect for him. And, you know, and they've been good together so far. Uh, but Sam's on him. And you can tell Ben's not used to that yet. <laughs> uh, but it's funny. I told Ben one day, it's not going to change. <laughs> you get know? used to it. Yeah. So, <laughs> don't get used to us. And, and he's been good. I mean, he shows up early and he works. You know, one of the things I think uh, you probably heard when you first took the job and when you'd seen him play was, oh, you can't shoot a three-pointer. You need to work on this three-pointer. And my guess was that you weren't going to focus on that at all. I mean, no. that wasn't, you know, if he shot five three-pointers or he shot none, wasn't going to make a difference to you if he was doing the things you needed him to do. He does so many things to help you win. Uh, unfortunately, this city is stuck on three-pointers. You know, they're like, they're like three-point crazy about Ben. And I guess that's been the narrative in the past. So, you know, you can't get past that. But for me, Ben can lead us in assist every night. He can be the best defender every night. He can get in the paint and create fouls every night. He can orchestrate the team through his energy every night. And and he can rebound every night. And if he does all those things, he's going to end up with his 16, 20 points, 12 rebounds, 13 assists, no threes. Right. And, and if he has those numbers, you know, we had a game uh, recently, I think we were 135, and Ben didn't take a free three. The first question after the game, <laughs> were you happy that Ben didn't take a three? I said, I'm happy with 135. You know, I don't care how we get it. You'll take yeah. it. You'll take that every night. Yeah. But the thing I love watching him is I think he's got phen- phenomenal defensive instincts and versatility. Okay. And the other thing I like is, and, and you're with him every day, but from watching him, it seems like he's on an even keel. He doesn't seem to get too low if he makes a mistake. He doesn't get too high if he makes the right play, which I found with a lot of guys that really helps them get through the, the ups and downs. If they just, you know, go on to what you usually call next play. That one's over. Yeah. Go on to the next play. Yeah. He, he does have a great demeanor about the game. Uh, even kill uh, kind of moves past the last play pretty quickly. Uh, and I think eventually Dave, that's going to make him when he starts, I think he will keep shooting the ball better. And I think that will help him as well. Because, you know, when you go on that process, at least I know, because I was a horrible shooter when I first came to the league, uh, you'll start making shots, making shots, and then you're going to have that three or four bad games. And when you're emotional, that turns into five, six, seven bad games. When you're even killed and you know you're doing the work. And that's the one thing I would say with Ben. He's putting the work in. I think when guys know they're doing the work, even when the shots aren't going in, you know eventually they will because you're putting the work in. And I think that's where Ben's at. Well, you know, a great example is when you talk about Jason Kidd. Jason really didn't discover his ability to shoot at the three-point line until much later in his in, in his career. And, and you, you could see Ben following that 
arc to some to some degree. Uh, with Embiid, one of the things that's a concern, Doc, is he's he's never played more than 64 games. So how do you manage trying to keep him at a point where you know you, you get a good seed during the season, obviously, that you want, but at the same time he's healthy enough once the playoffs start? It's it's the key to our season. I mean, listen, uh, he has injury history with his knees and his feet. And and he's not a he's not a six four guy. He's a big right. dude. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've always thought he's big, but then when you coach him, you're around him every day. He's big. Like he's just mammoth guy. Uh, swallows other teams, and and literally, Dave is unguardable. Um, and so, how do you get him through the season? Well, you do it carefully. You know, uh, we've hired a new team here since I've been here uh, in our medical department. We're monitoring not just Joel, but everybody. Right. But it's key. Like, listen, you know, like I know, number one, you, you want to be one of the top three seeds. Right. Uh, because when you get below that, it's hard. It's hard right. to win. Uh, so that's number one. And then number two, if your key guys aren't healthy, you're not going anywhere anyway. So those two things are very important. You know, um, shortly after you took the job, Daryl Morey jumps on board with uh, uh, to be president, and now you have he and you have Elton Brand as the GM and yourself. And as we know, Daryl's the godfather of the analytical approach, and your team adds a much-needed group of outside shooters, which I think opens the floor for Ben and Embiid to do a lot of things. And it looks like you have a great steal in the draft in Maxi, you know, oh, the young guard. Um, so how do you and Daryl find common ground in your discussions of, of the roster? Because I think a lot of people only think Daryl looks like Give me the numbers. You know, I can only make a decision based on the numbers. Well, Daryl swears that he's anti-analytical, uh, <laughs> which tells me Daryl's nuttier than I thought he was because uh, he absolutely is analytical. Uh, you know, I think what helps is we did have a relationship uh, when we were in Boston together. Right. Um, you know, he signed my son in Houston for two years, so I got to know him even more then. Um, and we have been great. Like, he... he it allows me to do what I do. You know, I want him to do what he does. I want him to keep looking uh, to make this team better. He, he won't do a trade. Him and Elton and I are in lockstep in hand. We're not going to do a trade that I don't want. Um, and, and, you know, obviously I'm not going to do anything that they don't want. But as far as the basketball part and the coaching part, you know, Daryl just lets me coach, which is exactly what he should do. Um. In every spot you've been, and I've been your assistant in a couple of places, I was a GM with you in the Clippers, but you've had to rebuild the culture of each yeah. team you've been with. So, and each team you had to do it in a different way. Boston was more about rebuilding the culture that was there that the other previous coach had kind of kicked the old Celtics out, didn't want any part. But each, each team has been different in how you've had to approach that. Do you have to do that same thing here and rebuild or build a new culture? And how do you go about getting buy-in and trying to do that? Because that's it's not tough. the easiest thing. It's the hardest thing. Uh, it's harder than the basketball part, Dave. And you know that. And listen, this this culture here, it's it's a complete rebuild. Um, and I'm just being honest. Like, we, uh, we've made changes already. Um, we have to get this group on board with what winning looks like. Uh, there's not been winning here for a long time and you can feel that you can see that it's more like in the clipper days when we first got there it was more of the survival group you know i've been here for 20 years and they were proud of it and i'm like you haven't won 
how can you be proud of that? So we need to make changes here. And, you know, it's uh, that's the way we've always done it. Well, that hasn't worked. So for some people, it's been very refreshing. And for some people, not so refreshing. And those are the people that just won't make it here. And, and I've been very frank with them. I will say this, trying to rebuild a culture during COVID makes it so hard uh, because half the people aren't here, you know, so it's very difficult. Yeah, because you need that day-to-day closeness and the bonding and the chemistry and all those other things. And you want to see who wants to do it the way you want to do it, who understands the culture that you're trying to build. Uh, They may think it's good enough, but it may not be, and it's tough to tell. So it's been very interesting. You know, one of the things your team struggled with last year was obviously winning on the road. And, you know, so it's one of the things I know you've probably tried to look at what way, what do we need to do differently to get us in that mindset? But again, with COVID, I don't know if you can have team breakfast. I don't know if you can have, you know, the team meetings. It's a whole different, you know, ball of wax. You know, the first day I had my first group meeting, non-player, I set our road record, I guess, Anne-Marie is still with me, uh, uh, wrote it down. She said, I said I wrote record in a 30-minute talk 72 times. I I just kept saying the record. Like, how can you have this road record? And And I said, I'm blaming everybody that's standing here. And there's not one player here. We're doing something wrong. I just kept saying that. We are doing, and I told them, I have no idea what it is, but you don't play that well at home and then go on a road and it's that bad unless we, and I kept saying, we are doing something wrong and we're going to get to the bottom of it. Um, so it looked like early on, you know, we go out, we win the first couple on the road and then bam, COVID hits. Um, and with COVID, you still can't tell like why we didn't yet because guys, they can't go hang out, <laughs> you know, um, it's more, so it is tough, Dave. And, um, but that is something that we have to improve on, clearly. Did you get any feedback from players after you had that talk that came up to you and said, well, you know, we never did this on the road or uh, we need to do more of this or something. So they were conscious of it that they just needed to do something different too. Yeah, they were conscious of the record. What I found that was interesting was some were not conscious of what they were doing on the road. And some were very conscious of what was going on the road. And the ones that were conscious of what was going on the road that was wrong were the ones that were doing the right things. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. So, but I thought it was interesting, not only just from the players, but from the coaches and, you know, Brett Brown, like, like he's he's been great. Uh, he was very informative to me on things that he saw. Uh, and, and in his defense, a lot of things that because the way things were set up for him, he didn't have a chance to be successful. So he's uh, been unlike he's been unlike the presidential transition of power so far. Yeah, he actually worked yeah. with you in that transition. Yeah, he's he's been the anti-Trump, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey Doc, you've turned 60 later this year. You're less than 50, 50 victories away from a thousand wins. You're yeah. in your 22nd year as a head coach, time sheer flies. What still excites you about coaching? Oh, the guys winning. Like winning excited has excited me since I was a child. Uh, I enjoy winning. I hate losing. So that would be number one. Um, but the, the, the players, the guys, they're so different now. And they're much harder 
let me just throw that out there. But there's nothing better um, than watching a young player grow up under your tutelage. Uh, sometimes it's bumpy. And then when they come back to you, you know, Rondo and I is a great example. Rondo right. and I bumped heads every day, like literally every day. I was relentless. Like I wouldn't have liked me uh, when I was coaching <laughs> Rondo. I mean, I was, I was brutally hard on him, right. but I was brutally hard on him because I kept telling him, I'm not going to coach you to who you think you are today. I'm going to coach you to who you should be someday. And you're not going to like it. Um, but by the end of our relationship, it was amazing. He was the guard. He was the coach. You know, he literally would take my play sheet and run the plays on the floor. He didn't need to turn to me anymore. Um, and so then when you get the calls back or when you get calls back from your older players who have kids and family and they're asking for advice, what makes me feel old is some of these players now have kids uh, <laughs> that are about to, you know, play in the NBA. And that to me is, that's a little uh, scary for me. Yeah, but I think it makes you feel like you reach them because yeah. uh, too many players, they have a relationship with the team and the coach when they either leave or they get traded. That coach doesn't exist sort of anymore. And, and I think it's a testament to how you've been and I've seen you operate that way. That, that players may not appreciate the, the way you have dealt with them to get them to be better. But all of a sudden, as time goes by, they start to buy in that that was really good for them. Yeah, it's, it's, I think for a coach, it's the best. And not only just the basketball. You know, when I first took the job in Orlando and I was getting advice from guys out, a lot of the advice, and you were very good with this with me, is a I was getting advice, don't get close to the players. I remember you're like, who told you that? That's ridiculous. Of course you get close with the players. And of course you you cross them from basketball to their real life. And and, and I've done that. And I think that part of relationship has probably been even just as important as the basketball part. Well, I always thought you had one great saying um, at that time when you, and this was your first job. So you didn't have any coaching experience at that point, but you, you made a statement to the rest of us as assistants that you didn't want to go into a room, close the door and talk about players. You wanted that door to be open and talk to players. And I thought that was indicative of your whole approach to coaching and it's continued that way. You know, it's, um, you know what's interesting. What understand. Yeah, Dave, what's interesting. So um, I get here and I get all my coaches and then half of them have been here and, um, I started asking them about our team and it was like the Orlando conversation over again. Well, um, he doesn't do that. Well, well, well why not? <laughs> well, he just doesn't. I said, have you asked them to do it? Well, no. I said, so we we're talking about a player that we have that will not do something that you would like him to do, but no one's actually told him to do it. And I said, does that make, and I, and I said it to our room, I said, does that make any sense to anyone in this room? <laughs> I said, that's nuts. And so, you know, we have told guys things that they should do, and they're doing it. They're trying to do it. Uh, I think players want to be coached. You know that. They do. They just want to know that the direction is right, and, and then they'll try to follow it. Yeah, and I think Tobias Harris is a great um, indication, too, because he had a terrific year for you with the Clippers. I thought last year he seemed to be pressing, maybe trying to justify his new contract. Who knows? Yeah. But I think he's been off to a great start. And I think that relationship 
has probably that previous relationship has probably helped him feel confident that you know who he is, you know his game, and that's going to give a player a lot of confidence going forward. It's 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 really been good, Dave. It's it's funny. Our first day of practice, first day, we swing the ball and the ball stops, and he goes into his little bag of tricks, and I and I start yelling, "Move it, move it, move it!" Quick decision, and he turns around. It's like, oh my gosh. I haven't heard that in a long time. And I said, clearly, you haven't heard that in a long time, and you need to start doing it. Um, and I tell you, man, he's terrific. When he's quick and, and decisive, he's a heck of a player. Doc, thanks for joining me today on Dave's front office. I want to wish you more than anything else a healthy team as you move forward into this most challenging of seasons. Yeah, health is the key. Tell Elena, I hate calling your kids kids anymore. Tell Elena and the adult girls I said hi. <laughs> I will. Thanks, Doc. All right. Take care. Thanks to our guest, Doc Rivers, for being so generous with his time. Thanks to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and also to our editor, Tom Phillip. Please listen to our other Pure Hoops media shows. The Mike Wise Show drops every Monday. Full Court with Fisher and Kay has great college hoop guests every Tuesday. On Wednesday, it's Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin. Each Thursday, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks drops with Monica McNutt and King McClure. And the Pure Hoops podcast has a new show every Friday with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Please download, listen, and enjoy. Just a friendly reminder, COVID-19 is not done with us. So please continue to wear your mask in public, keep your distance, and wash your hands. And keep all the medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. They're putting it all on the line for us. Until next time, take care. Dave's Front Office with your host, Dave Wool, is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 